My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the preachers here, and we continue this morning in our study of the Song of Solomon. We come to verse 2 of chapter 5, which if you have one of the church Bibles is on page 527. We've seen quite a bit so far in our study of this book. We've seen quite a bit of the delight and the celebration of love and of marital sexuality. We saw the joy of initial attraction. We saw the joy of dating. We saw the joy of marriage and sexual intimacy. We've had the joy, 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 joy all the way through this book. But this book knows, just as much as you and I know, that human relationships have more to them than those seasons when roses are red and violets are blue. Any relationship, and romance is no different, has its share of storm clouds and brambles. So it's important to know how to view conflict when it inevitably arises. What do you do when the person of your dreams turns out to have a nightmarish streak? What about when you fight over things like when to spend money, when to make love, when to try to get pregnant, how often to have people in the home, or how far in advance You must leave home in order to arrive at events on time. To let you know where this week's text will take us, the most important thing is to understand that any relationship, and especially a marriage relationship, can get better for having gone through conflict than it would have been without the conflict at all. I repeat, any relationship, and especially a marriage, can get better for having gone through conflict. We must have this perspective if when conflict arises, we are to handle it with respect and with hope rather than with fear, anger, or despair. To that end, this passage will remind us, as you can see in your outlines in the bulletin, that the honeymoon always comes to an end, and then it will provide us with two questions to ask after any fight to help you reacquire the faith to see how the relationship can get better for having gone through the conflict. Let me pray for us as we dive into God's word. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we would be so lost without you, without your direction, without your wisdom, without your rescue. And so, Lord, we ask you that you would please send us more of your spirit, that we might see and understand your word, that we would learn to fight clean, help us to have grace and respect in conflict, and open our eyes that we might see your purposes in making things even better as a result of the conflict we have in our relationships. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Our poem this morning begins by painting a picture of when things are not always rosy in the relationship. And that will then set up the two questions that follow. So first, we see that the honeymoon always comes to an end. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through 8. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. So this first stanza of the poem shows us that the honeymoon always comes to an end. It begins in verse 2 with the woman asleep in bed and alone in bed. And this phrase, but my heart was awake, signals to us that this sequence here is, uh, appears to be another dream that she's having, similar to the dream we saw at the beginning of chapter 3. She's in bed, she sleeps, but her heart's awake, so it, it's, the, the dreams are alive. And in this dream, her man arrives back home from wherever he was. He's knocking on the door, verse 2, asking her to let him in. And there's certainly a double meaning to the phrase, open to me. He's not merely asking her to unlock the bedroom door so he can come in and get some sleep. He's asking her to respond to his advances. And he lathers on the sweetness pretty thick. He calls her my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He's a sweet talker, but when he mentions the dew on his head and the drops in his hair at the end of the verse, the poet, I think, is tipping us off to the fact that he's not merely coming home, he's coming home late, very late. Late enough that the, the dew has already fallen, she's already gone to bed without him, perhaps it's later than he said he would be home, we don't know. But he's hoping that she'll be eager to see him and be intimate with him. And her response is somewhat less than eager. Verse 3, she's already gone through her bedtime routine. She's changed her clothes. She has washed her feet. She's too tired to have to go through it all again if she lets him in. 
So we have here an ancient example of a couple very much in love with one another, yet they have very different expectations of what form their love will take on this particular night. I can understand the disappointment of such varying expectations in a couple. Early in my marriage to Erin, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, we had very different expectations of what it would look like to greet one another after a time of separation, such as a business trip. I expected that we would run to each other across the airport in slow motion, like in the movies, and we would embrace into a passionate kiss. And she expected much less of a public display of affection. When my expectations were unmet after our first few reunions like this, I really struggled with anger. I was tempted to believe that she didn't love me as much as I loved her, and I was really good at showing my love for her by giving her a cold shoulder after those first few trips. These were not my brightest moments as a husband. We will regularly face such differences in expectation and the disappointment and conflict that are the result we will regularly face. It is not possible to avoid such differences. It's not possible to avoid such conflicts, but it is altogether possible to handle these things with grace and with faith. In verse 4, for some reason, the the sound of his hand rattling the the door handle enlivens her, and she has a change of heart. So in verse 5, in in this dream, she gets up, she comes to the door to open it up for him, and her hand comes away from the door dripping with liquid myrrh. He probably, presumably, had gotten himself all lathered up in cologne for their reunion, for their rendezvous, and, and that had rubbed off in the handle and thus on her hand as well. And the smell of him, verse 6, makes her hear his voice in her head. She says, my soul failed me when he spoke, but she just said before that that he had turned and gone. So she's hearing his voice in her head, and it's a dream, so it's going to be a little bizarre. He had already turned and gone, and, and she says, my soul failed me. We could say she nearly died, so she is going to go look for him. And so in verse 7, in this dream, the scenery shifts wildly. She's suddenly in the street where the police on night shift not only won't help her, but they beat her severely and take away her veil. Apparently, they mistook her for a prostitute wandering the streets. Those are the women who would be out late at night wearing veils, and they attempted to beat her for such unlawful behavior. In verse 8, she can only turn to the daughters of Jerusalem and bind them under oath to find her man and tell him how lovesick she is. And the end of this poem is very strange. I mean, if she was just falsely accused and beaten by those watchmen who should have been looking out for her, why is her primary message to the young women, tell him I'm lovesick? Why doesn't she say, 
Please tell him to come protect me and take me to a doctor. I think we need to keep in mind the setup from verse 2, that she is sleeping, but her heart is awake. This little episode is quite bizarre because it's a dream. It's a dream that turns into a nightmare highlighting and showing us some of her greatest fears. She has the fear that her marriage won't be as blissful as she had hoped. She has fear that her man will turn around and leave her over something trivial, like their little exchange that night. She has fear that she'll never reunite with him again. She's afraid that she'll go on uncared for and unprotected by all the men whose job it should be to care for her and protect her. And she's afraid that she'll never adequately communicate to her husband or to the watching world just how much he means to her. So tell him I'm lovesick. And so this nightmare of hers has a lot to teach all of us about what to do when our fears run wild. When something is not right in relationships and we're tempted to fear the worst and we're tempted to either despair or go on the attack, what can we do in those moments when we've become painfully aware that the honeymoon in this relationship has come to an end? How can we regain the perspective that all this pain is worth it will be worth it in the end. The way we do that is that the text now offers us two questions to ask after any fight. And these two questions are put on the lips of the young Jerusalem women. In verse 9, we'll see it. And then the second question in chapter 6, verse 1. These two questions drive the wife in the poem to reflect on some critical matters to help her work through her fears and the fear she has at the prospect, the nightmare of severe conflict. Question number one is, what makes this person so great? What makes this person so great? Look at verses 9 through 16. What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful of, among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as a raven, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So in verse 9, the question posed to her is, What is your beloved more than another beloved? And that's repeated twice. 
In other words, the, the young ladies of Jerusalem are asking her, so you would like us to find your man for you and tell him that you are lovesick for him. But why should we care? What makes this man of yours so great compared to all the other men out there? That's the question. Why is he so great compared to all the other beloveds, all the other men? And so in answer, in verses 10 through 16, the woman provides a catalog of his features. Sort of like he did with her in chapter 4, but whereas he stopped partway down her body, she goes the entire way from head to foot. And her catalog has two main themes in it. And this is what, where I want to focus here. Two main themes. The first theme is that she highlights his glory or his radiance. The very first adjective she uses to describe him in verse 10 is radiant. And she begins and ends his, his body part description with the metaphor of gold. In verse 11, his head is the finest gold. And in verse 15, his legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. And in between there, verse 14, we get arms of gold. So there's lots of gold here that he's made of. And in addition, some of his parts are related to precious gems. In verse 14, his arms are set with jewels and his body is bedecked, it's a body of polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. So he's glowing, he's radiant, he's all these precious metals and gems. So he is first of all precious and glorious and radiant to her. The second theme she highlights in her description is her desire to be as close to him as possible. As close to him as possible. Verse 12. She says his eyes are like doves. And we've heard that before. That metaphor has come up a few times in this book already. But now she goes beyond that. These doves are beside streams of water. They are bathed in milk. And they are sitting beside a full pool. In other words, not only are they very, very white. Like doves bathed in milk. <laughs> but but. Uh, they are a sight that she finds refreshing like streams of water and a full pool. In verse 13, his cheeks are like beds of spices. She basically pictures herself nuzzling her nose into his beard where she can get a good whiff of him from very, very close. In verse 13, his lips drip with liquid myrrh. That very potion that previously had dropped onto her hand from the door bolt is now something she wants to get close enough to kiss off his lips so she can taste it. And also in verse 16, his mouth is sweet and he is altogether desirable. So she describes his glory and she describes how she wants to be as close to him as possible. And all of this is well and good, but her description has a purpose. Remember, she's answering a question. The question was, what makes your man so great? Why is he better than any of the, all the other men out there? 
And so as she describes his features, it's not like she's a witness speaking to a forensic portrait artist so they can draw a picture to recognize him in a lineup and find him on the street for her. That's not what's happening. She's not talking primarily about how he looks. She's talking primarily about what makes him superior to others. This is what he is that is more than or better than other men as far as she is concerned. And what she has to say is that he is the embodiment of radiant glory and intimate closeness. Put these themes together along with the specific imagery she uses. Gold, jewels, Rods and columns, cedars of Lebanon, a pool of water, spices, and myrrh. And if you're steeped in the Old Testament, you would understand that an ancient Jew reading this description could not help but think of this guy in terms of the temple in Jerusalem. All these metaphors are drawn from the temple. She describes him almost as though he were a statue, but even more like a building with two columns that he's standing on and wood panels overlaid with gold and ivory steps, a source of light, a basin of water and fragrant incense. In other words, she's saying that this man is the place where I can experience closeness to glory. Just like the Jerusalem temple was the place where the glory of God dwelt in close proximity to his people. So the answer to this question, what makes your man so great? Is not that he's got black hair, rosy cheeks, and bulging biceps. No, the answer is much more like, he is so great because he is like a temple to me. He is a source of intimacy that doesn't exploit me. A source of strength that doesn't crush me. Of proximity that doesn't bore me. Desire that doesn't tire me. And lasting friendship that doesn't belittle or reject me. Verse 16, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So how does this apply for us today? In chapter 4, we saw that godly marriage was compared to a return to paradise, to the Garden of Eden. Now here in chapter 5, we see that godly marriage is also like a little temple. It is a place where God's glory is reflected in profound closeness and intimacy. Let me give you two quick ideas to help you apply this. First, a specific application. Men, aspire to be the kind of man who could be described this way, as a living temple of God's glory. Aspire to be the kind of man who knows how to get close to people especially to his wife, and a man who provides safety, security, and closeness by honoring and cherishing his beloved and never exploiting her 
for his own purposes or lusts. That's your specific application. Here's a second, a more general application. After a conflict, make sure to ask yourself this question. What makes this person so great? Right after a fight, when you are the most afraid and the most angry, you will be most inclined to rehearse in your mind everything you don't like about the other person. You will be inclined in any relationship to do this, and in any relationship, especially in a marriage, this is deadly. You start going back over the conversations you've had and the encounters you've experienced, and you start reading sinister motives into everything that the other person has said or done. Instead, try this. Ask yourself, what has God done to make this person so great? What have they done that is right or true? What is just and honorable? Go out of your way to find anything excellent or praiseworthy about the person you're fighting with. And think about these things. In fact, make yourself a list. In a sense, go head to toe and count the many things that you appreciate about them and are grateful for about them. And use that list to help you move toward them rather than turning your shoulder to them. So you can begin the work of repairing things after the fight. This is how the Lord Jesus treated us when we were unlovely rebels. And this is what it looks like for such good news to grip our hearts toward others who have offended us. Find the hope that the relationship can get even better after the conflict than it was before. And you do that by reminding yourself of what makes this person so great that's the first question to ask after a fight and the second question is where is this relationship heading chapter 6 1 to 3 where has your beloved gone O most beautiful among women where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you my beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Now the second question here from the daughters of Jerusalem in verse 1 is, where has your beloved gone? Where has he turned that we may seek him with you? And, and if, if you think, if you presume, if you come away from this thinking that all they want to know is something like, where should we look for him? You'll be very confused by her answer because she says in verse 2, he has gone down to his garden to graze and to gather lilies. Remember from chapter 4, his garden is her herself, her body, uh, their love. And so she claims here in verse 2 
that he is back with her. And in verse 3, they possess one another once again. I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. And so if they are asking nothing more than, where shall we look for him in order to tell him you are lovesick? She answers, well, he's right here with me. The poem wouldn't make much sense. So, so what I think is happening when they ask, where has he gone? What's happening is that they want to know, what direction is this thing heading in? Is, is this guy gone for good? Did he just peace out on you and should we expect divorce papers in the mail? Or do you think he'll be back for you? When the dust settles and this fight becomes a thing of the past, will the two of you still share a roof, the bed, and a last name? Where is this relationship heading? And as she steps outside of the immediate conflict and she reflects on the bigger picture of where this thing is heading, it takes her back, verse 3, to her assurance of mutual possession. This is something we've already seen in this book. It came up in, uh, at the end of chapter 2. And she realizes that they are not moving apart. They are actually moving closer, even in the aftermath of this conflict. But there's a slight twist here. You see, the first time she declared their mutual possession of one another was chapter 2, verse 16, where she said, my beloved is mine and I am his. But look at what she says here. It's different. In verse 3, she now says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. In other words, she flipped the order of who owns who first. Well, he owns me first. I am his. So she doesn't, in chapter 2, she started with how she owned him and the intimacy she was getting. But now he, now she starts with how he owns her. She's willing to put him first and give herself fully to him. You see, the conflict and the search to win him back, even though it's in a dream here, it's inflamed her desire for him and it has deepened her selfless devotion to him. So the fight they had doesn't just end up back where they were at the beginning. It ends even better than they were at the beginning. How does this apply? After your next fight or disagreement with someone, especially if it's a spouse, but it doesn't have to be, make sure to ask yourself, where is this relationship heading? And step, try to step out of the immediate circumstance and look at the bigger picture. And you, you start to realize Jesus died for him. Jesus died for her. We both have a stake in this friendship, in this marriage, in this relationship. We're both invested to see it through. If we both profess to trust Christ, we will both be with our Lord for eternity, having become co-partakers of his glory. So what would the Lord have us to do now to help us move further in that direction? That's what direction all of these relationships we have are heading in. And here's the big surprise. 
the God who created life and breath and all things, he has ordered the cosmos in such a way that things benefit from and improve under stress. So, for example, iron needs to be pounded on with a fat hammer. And the sun comes out when the air is under higher pressure. So also, one of the main ways that relationships improve and deepen is through the stress of conflict. It's only after we butt heads that we actually become aware of all the things that we have failed to understand about each other. It's only after our expectations have gone unmet and disappointed that we can set those expectations aside and find even better ones. It's through stress and pressure that we grow close to one another. Just look at how God's relationship with humanity has developed. It began in paradise, in sweet fellowship and perfect harmony. But sin entered the world and everything broke apart. Man and woman ran away to hide from God and to try to take his place. But what did God do? I mean, that just opened up his plan of salvation where he would one day send his son to die for the sin of the world. And after Jesus came and died and rose from the grave, God was reunited with his believing children, his bride, forever. So now, our community with God no longer takes place in a garden. It now takes place in a glorious city, the new Jerusalem with golden streets and pearly gates. Our redemption in the Lord Jesus puts us into a relationship with God that is even better than it would have been had there been no sin to begin with. God gets even more glory and the intimacy we have with him is sweeter. Now, I imagine that some of you may have been struggling with the teaching of the Song of Solomon so far. It's been filled with so much joy and glory and sweetness that perhaps you feel unworthy, not ready for this. Maybe as you see the picture of godly romance and sexuality painted for us in this book of poetry, perhaps you feel like you've already screwed that up. Maybe you lost your virginity out of wedlock so you don't think you'll ever be viewed as a locked garden by your spouse. Maybe you've been so hurt and confused by the way others have treated you that you're not sure you could ever be naked and unashamed with another person. Or maybe you're not even sure you want to be. You've been beaten, bruised, and battered by the world, by abusers, by former lovers, perhaps even by your own choices. And this passage should remind you that you have a divine lover who is absolutely thrilled to be yours. Your relationship with him is heading toward 
glory. It will be even better for all you've been through than it would have been without any sin or suffering at all. And friends, it is never too late to pursue Him, to live for Him, to flourish under His loving protection because He sure wants you to be with Him. So please, have hope. You can have much hope. You can have hope that your relationship with the Lord Jesus is even better because of all you've been through to get there. And you can have hope that your ongoing conflicts with other people don't have to signal the end of those friendships. Please memorize these two questions to ask after any fight to help you remember that God is improving your relationship through the conflict. What makes this person so great? And where is this relationship heading? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, this is just incredible that you would set your affection on us even while we were your enemies and we were running away from you. And yet, Lord, you have drawn us in and you have assured us of such glory with you in our new bodies, on the new heaven and the new earth forever. Please help us to appropriate a piece of that glory even here and now that we might experience it in our relationships as we deepen, as we overcome conflict, as we grow more and more intimate. Help us to trust you through this and not to turn and believe that all we have is our fear or our anger or our disappointment. We ask that you would help us for the sake of you and your glory through Jesus Christ alone, we ask it. Amen.